This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It, where we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. As many of the listeners of this show may already know, I'm somewhat of a tomboy, but I do like clothes that make me feel stylish and powerful. So what's your favorite piece of clothing? My favorite pair of jeans are my old Levi's 501s. I only wear them every once in a while, but I just love having them and I like to pair them with a 1970s-era Rolex Mariner men's watch. I'm going to bet your favorite item is also not the most expensive item in your closet, or even the most stylish. It's probably the item that makes you feel your best. It's something that when you put it on, you're completely transformed into the most beautiful version of yourself. Our guest today knows all about the fashion industry and why we feel so loyal to the brands and the styles that make us feel our best inside and out. Pauline Brown has helped to build some of the world's most influential luxury brands. She is the former chairman of North America for Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, the world's largest luxury conglomerate, where she oversaw and led 70 brands in five sectors, including fashion, leather goods, watches, and jewelry. Prior to that, she led acquisitions for Estee Lauder, and then she was a partner at the Carlyle Group, one of the biggest private equity firms in the world. In 2021, Pauline launched an innovative e-learning platform called Aesthetic Intelligence Labs, which teaches executives and entrepreneurs how to build brands that stand out. The platform is an extension of a popular course she introduced at Harvard Business School in 2017 and currently teaches at Columbia Business School. Her book, Aesthetic Intelligence, How to Boost It and How to Use It in Business and Beyond, was published by HarperCollins in 2019. Pauline, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Great to see you, Karen. Thank you for having me on the show. So you and I are both Wharton grads. You graduated in 95, and I graduated in 1987. We often talk about the best lessons we learn in our formative years, but I want to ask a contrarian question. When you look back at what you learned and what they taught you about business, what were things that were just completely untrue or you found to be totally irrelevant? Interesting you should ask because the answer to that question is exactly why I'm teaching today. And it also is a source of a lot of frustration among business students and and faculty. The assumption in a lot of business programs is that everything can be measured and everything should be measured and that we can somehow control or optimize outcomes. And I think what is lost in all of that and what I am trying to defy with my own instruction, with my own coursework, is the art of business, the fact that there is a lot of inspiration that goes into 
management, a lot of instinct that goes into it, a lot of instinct and imagination that goes into strategy as well. And I don't know of a program that has really nailed how do you not just teach people, but release people so that they can exercise their imagination and their instinct. How do you help people get back in touch with their instinct? It is so important, and not just in business, but in this case, I'll say, business is sorely lacking in its ability to reinforce that way of thinking. So that reminds me of an anecdote in your book where you were beginning at Estee Lauder in their mergers and acquisitions department, and you came prepared, full of data and stats and all kind of industry information, and the then CEO basically said to you, this is useless. Useless. This isn't what we need to know. Mm -hmm. Was that the sort of first wake-up call that you had? Like, wow, all of this sort of data that I use as my toolkit is actually not going to be helpful. Well, what amazed me at the time was not that I didn't think he was right. On some level, I knew that what I was producing was somewhat useless. It was that a man in that position would say it with such force and with such conviction and still be so effective. It defied everything I learned, not just at Wharton, but I had done uh, a few years at Bain um, in management consulting. And I often called that stage of my life my MBA part two. It took a lot of the foundational work that I picked up at Wharton and to another level. And I thought that that was being practical. I thought that that was taking my business education further. It actually took me further afield in the things that I had to unlearn when I got to Estee Lauder. So we've been wondering, sort of just talking among the producers here about something, and I hope you can clarify it for us. So this is the big question we're wondering. What is the difference between a brand and a look. How are they different? How are they related? You know, we think about Hermes, for example, with the iconic Birkin bag. The Birkin is the look, Hermes is the brand, but they've sort of become one and the same. And meanwhile, Louis Vuitton has their iconic LV print, which is the look, but is it arguably also the brand? What is the distinction? Is there one? Well, for sure, there is one. Not to say that they don't become tightly intertwined over time. And certainly emotionally, we associate the two. If we don't like a brand, we aren't going to like the look and vice versa. There's a few limitations on this concept of look. The first one is that a look is purely visual. A great brand isn't just an image, a visual image. A great brand is a set of stories. It's an experience. It's really a 360 expression. And if it's done well, it's an expression of values that run much deeper than that campaign or than that product design. So the best brands, they start usually with a founder or a small group of founders. Those founders had a philosophy. The philosophy wasn't just how a product should be made. It might be, in the case of Hermes, around a certain style of living, around sort of this sort of French horse country world. In the case of Vuitton, it was all around international travel. It was uh, invented in the era of the steamship. And what's interesting, if you take either of those brands, is that the, the circumstances that birthed them are not relevant to the world we live in today. But the brands are highly relevant. And why? Well, not because in the case of Vuitton, we travel with trunks on steamships. 
We fly on airplanes and we want our luggage to look quite different than what we would have used in the 1860s. But the theory behind travel, the quest to discover the world, the romance, the glamour, this was royalty of Europe. They were traveling in great style and seeing parts of the world very opulently. So the point being that the feel of the brand and what it stands for, its philosophy and how it expresses that has not changed significantly over the centuries. But the look and the designs have changed in order to keep it relevant. So to go back to your initial question, is there a difference? Yeah, there's a big difference. If you just stop with a look, you'll become irrelevant pretty quickly. If you start with a philosophy and a set of values that are expressed through looks and more, that's the makings of a great brand. So I have to say, on a related note, you are an incredibly stylish woman. And in fact, knowing before I was preparing for this, I I actually had to think, all right, what am I going to wear? I'm a little (laughs) bit nervous. So how have you cultivated your own look, which you've said has sort of developed and changed over time? And do you find that when you were working on different brands that that brand sort of seeped into your look, as it were, while you were working on those projects? Well, I often think of the evolution of my style and that of others. It's like the evolution of your personality. And we go through different phases of life. We experiment with different sides of who we are. Some of those sides stick and some of them don't. Usually the ones that stick are because they're more authentic to who we are or what our earlier influences comprised of. So in my case, if I had to offer up some observations of how my own style has evolved. It's been a lot of trial and error. To this day, I make mistakes. I go out of the house and after the fact, I say I wore one bangle too much or maybe those shoes weren't appropriate. They were too high or too flat or whatever the reflection might be. But the reason that that's important is in that critical thinking comes an awareness that allows me to sort of continually refine it. And I think certain parts of my style I've nailed, I've sort of figured out over time, and it's been over 50 years, what things don't work on my body. There's a lot of styles that I admire in other people. It doesn't work for me, either because it doesn't feel true to my personality or because it doesn't befit my particular shape. <laughs> and and I have to be brutally self-honest about what, what works and how I want to feel. If I wear something that looks good, but it doesn't feel good, my facial expression will give it away and it will undermine every effort I make to look good. So I always start with what will make you feel good. So when you say feel good, you're not just talking about whether or not it's comfortable. It's how you feel about yourself. I mean, I think one of the problems with COVID, since this is a rather superficial one, but The idea that we got so comfortable, the the effortlessness of getting dressed in the morning became a laziness. And some of, you know, what's entailed in a little bit like working out, you know, if it's getting too easy, you're probably not improving your shape or your form or your aerobic capabilities. There has to be a little bit of struggle built into it in order to achieve the right outcome. And so I would say we're meeting in the middle now, which is good. There are a lot of things that I did back in the day in terms of four-inch heels or cinched waists. I wouldn't do that anymore. I don't want to be physically uncomfortable, but I also don't want to be so comfortable that I feel like I woke up a few minutes ago and I'm barely transitioned from my bed. So let me tell you about my favorite outfit, Levi's jeans, old Levi's jeans, a white shirt, 
and a man's 1970s Rolex Mariner. Mm. So I know what I think that says, but what would you think that says? Well, I mean, the Rolex is what takes it to another level. It's incredibly practical, right? It's a uniform more than a costume. If you see what I'm wearing right now, there's a lot of color. I tend to err on the side of more adornment, more jewelry than less. And what you've described is a sort of Yankee work ethic. It's, I want to look good, and you always look extraordinarily stylish in whatever you're wearing. It takes a lot of confidence for a woman to go out as simply as what you've just described and to not have to overmake herself or overadorn herself. It's a very non-fussy look, what you've described, and I'm sure that that's in keeping with how you want to live your life. You don't want a lot of fuss. But it's not a indifferent look, especially when you mentioned the Rolex watch. Right. Yes, it's not indifference. Wow, I think you pretty much nailed it. I don't want fuss. All right, I have a lot that I want to ask you, but we're going to have to take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And we're back with Pauline Brown. One piece of advice I got one time really stuck with me for a long time, and, and that was... People forget almost 100% of what you say, but they remember almost everything about how you make them feel. And so I want to get to aesthetic intelligence, which is a phrase that you have coined and created, and it's so you call it the other AI. So tell us about your central philosophy there, and then we're going to get to how do you teach that. Mm -hmm. Well, so first of all, I love that you came into this by talking about the feeling. The mistake a lot of people make when they think of the concept of aesthetics is the look. Going back to your question of what's the difference between a brand and a look or an image. Great aesthetics is not really about how it looks. It's a piece of it, but it's, I'd say, a relatively small piece of it. It's how a particular object or experience makes the receiver feel. It's all about perception and how you feel through all of your senses, not just your eyes. All of our senses are much more active than we often consciously register. So going to your question, how does this concept of aesthetic intelligence relate to my, my philosophy toward business, but also toward the world? Well, number one, I think most people are much more emotionally driven than we care to believe. Emotionally driven, we justify, we use our rational thinking to justify decisions we make and actions we take. But our compulsion to go one direction or another, buy one brand over another, spend our money in one way over another, is very driven by an emotional tug. 
And so when I started, I say, what is this? Like, what are the underpinnings of this emotion? The vast majority of what we're buying, we don't need. We long ago fulfilled our basic needs, but we have a lot of wants. And this idea of aspirational drive is not relegated just to high net worth, right? At every economic level, people, they aspire, they dream. And so I was looking around at the world of business and going back to your question about Wharton, I was a marketing major, and I was taught to look at consumer demand as a very rational function or a very rational dynamic. And it's not. Right. As prices go up, demand goes down. Very straightforward mathematical. For example, or as people spend more on certain things, they'll spend less on other things. I mean, we could dissect it any which way. But the reality is that, you know, and depending on the industry, depending on the product category, about 85% of why we buy one thing over another is emotionally driven. And so while I don't think aesthetics is the only driver of emotion, we could sort of talk about what does trigger emotions. I think storytelling, I think character, I think there's a lot of other things that motivate us in business and out. But I think aesthetics is a huge one. And in fact, I sit on the board of a Penn Center of Neuroaesthetics, which studies the brain. It's the University of Pennsylvania a Medical School Center. And they study why do humans care so much about beauty, and not just in the form of other humans, like a beautiful face, but in the form of art, in the form of beautiful objects, in the form of beautiful spaces. Why do we care? And it isn't just about comfort, right? There's something much more transcendent. And what struck me was that we're not really studying what makes an object perceived as beautiful. And again, by beautiful, I don't mean is it harmonious, was it elegantly designed. I mean it's emotionally uplifting. It's memorable. It's compelling. It draws us in. And so I sort of started to deconstruct among the brands that do this really well, what are they doing differently? What are they doing differently? And it's most pronounced in luxury goods, because if luxury doesn't do it well, there's absolutely no reason to be in business. Nobody needs a diamond earring. And if you do just want a pure commodity diamond earring, you can do a lot cheaper than Cartier. So what are these luxury companies doing so supremely well? When I started teaching back in 2016, the course was called The Business of Aesthetics. And I did case study after case study of companies that were either so ahead of their competition on the basis of their aesthetic strategies or that were able to turn themselves around and almost create new marketplaces for themselves, create you know, new business models out of their aesthetic vision. But I had a frustration because at the end of the semester, I realized that while my students got it and they accepted the thesis, they weren't any more gifted at doing anything about it at the end of the class than they were at the beginning. And so I started to think about what does it really take to unleash this value, to unlock it in a company? Because just getting it sort of cognitively is not the answer. And that's when I said, you know, that there's a skill set. And I've seen it particularly among the people I've worked with in prestigious slash luxury businesses. And it's sort of a more profound version of taste. They just have a very good feel for the little differences, whether it's in how a product is designed, in how an ad campaign is expressed, uh, in how a store, where it's situated, in how people greet you when you enter the store. There's a lot of detail that goes into it. 
And most of the ones that do it well, it's not, they don't do it well because they've followed a rule book with, you know, a thousand different checklists. They do it well because they understand what good looks and feels like. And that is what I came back with and said, this is a form of aesthetic intelligence. We don't yet have a diagnostic test for it. We know it when we see it. There are lots of examples from Steve Jobs to Howard Schultz to Walt Disney that have transformed their companies with that superpower. How can I train other people to discover theirs? And I firmly believe that everyone has much more capacity than they know what to do with. Well, let me ask you something. In your home, what is your aesthetic? What moves you? What because so much of what you're talking about is not necessarily an item. It's, a, it's an experience, an environment, mm-hmm. a feeling. So for you, what is that? I refer to it in the book as a tale of two cities. Oftentimes what looks and feels good to us personally are some combination of early aesthetic epiphanies we've had that connect us to who we are with different experiences in formative stages of our life as we evolve. And so in my case, Coming from, I'm a first-generation American. All four of my grandparents came out of Western Europe. They all were uh, refugees in World War II. They brought a lot of the old European sensibility, particularly this sort of Austrian-Hungarian view of how a lady should conduct herself, of the sort of keepsakes that were in cabinets that had no utility but kind of connected them to their own heritage. So there was a lot of detail. There was a lot of refinement. There were a lot of stories. And at the same time, I spent my entire life in and around New York City and, you know, was a early feminist in the 80s. My mother was an at-home and a proud full-time mom of four kids. I really wanted to be independent. I wanted to kind of forge a new path. And there was a part of me as a New Yorker coming of age that really admired bold, rule-breaking, strong New York women. And so going back to your question of, of what feels good to me, it's always some combination of sort of European old world finery with a very unexpected, modern, bold splash of New York modernity. So I know you think of Donna Karen as both a mentor and a friend. I think of that as absolutely the kind of New York voice, especially in the era that was very different. It was not a lot of pattern. Right. And it was very bold shapes, feminine, yet really wanting to break out of that mold that a working woman should look exactly like a working man. So she was the modern influence. But if you go into her home today, into her workspaces, There's no old world. So I'd say in her case, it's some combination of sort of female empowerment, modernity with nature. Her taste tends to run much more rustic than mine. Like she'll pick up some raw slab of wood in Indonesia and she'll make a beautiful coffee table out of it. And there's a lot of spiritual overlay. But the important point with personal taste and style is I always say to my students, there's no right or wrong. All there is is true, right? And you can get closer and closer to your truth. Your truth or your authentic style can change over the years. It always does. But really what I try to do in cultivating or helping other people cultivate their aesthetic intelligence is to, first of all, give them the freedom 
to start to express it more fully. And second of all, give them exercises that start to connect the dots between who they are as people and what they believe and how that expresses itself through their own personal brand. One thing you said in your book that I found really interesting was that you say that the most stylish people are never those with the most money. And why is that? So there's a quote that I love. It was by Coco Chanel, and she said, elegance is refusal. And what she meant by that is great style comes with restraint, and it comes with sets of trade-offs. So, for example, if you asked me what my favorite foods are, and let's just say I gave you a litany of 20 different items from hazelnut ice cream to lamb chops, But let's just say I was having a dinner party and I'm serving a meal for others. If I just put all my favorite items on the table, it would not be a great experience. You know, there's no reason that hazelnut ice cream and lamb chops should be in the same plate ever. So part of this concept of curation, of not just putting things out there because you like them, but understanding the value of them and understanding how things go together. And oftentimes that skill, the curatorial skill, comes through limitation, like the fact that I can't have everything I want. So I have to decide if I only have four dresses in my closet, they better be the best ones. If I have unlimited room in my closet and unlimited budget, I just get everything that I like, and I never develop that curatorial muscle. So you also say that when you're trying to build your own aesthetic, four C's that you to do that. Clarity, consistency, creativity, and confidence. Mm. And I would assume that would apply to whether you're talking to someone about their particular style or a brand that you might be advising. Is that so? It is. And the reason I don't stop with the word taste, and I've sort of migrated toward this more complicated, certainly more complicated to spell concept of aesthetics and aesthetic intelligence, is I feel like everything I'm saying now, which we're applying to people's closets or to their dinner party menu, it's it's the underpinning of what a brand is, right? Brands, if done well, and very few of them are done that well, are expressing a value system. And they're expressing it, oftentimes that's a value that was born in another time and place, has evolved over time, has a kind of culture of people who, whether they understand it sort of through osmosis or they understand it because they've self-selected to work there and they're kind of shepherds of that concept, that philosophy. And even the best brands get it wrong sometimes. I can go back in whether it's a Hermes or it's a Mercedes-Benz, they've had bad campaigns or let's just say suboptimal ones. They've had designs that didn't go anywhere and they discontinued that model. Let me stop you there because I really want to hear some fails where you just like, wow, that brand absolutely blew it. And can you come back from that? Yeah, uh, you certainly can. I mean, I would say Apple blew it with that headset that they just came out with for $3,500. They are obviously such a strong company that they'll be fine. No one will buy it. It'll morph into something else. That's fine. I would also say, I don't think they blew it, but I think they missed the boat on the Apple Watch. Why? Because really good aesthetics usually has some element of surprise. And this, if, if I had asked anybody on the street if you were to take a version of my iPhone and turn it into a watch, 
I would say almost everyone would envision something like what it is. There was nothing inspired in that design. It functions well. From a sales perspective, it's done just fine. But it didn't have nearly the revolutionary effect that, for example, the iPad had in its time or Nano did before that. So I think every company goes through its phases. Generally, the deeper the history and the stronger the archive, the more forgiving people will be, which is why if I take, say, in the fashion industry, let's take one like Valentino, right, which is not a huge brand, and it's generally been undermarketed throughout its history. They've had a few bad seasons, but they have probably 90 years or close to it, maybe not that much, but several decades of archival styles and of great fabrications, and they've gone through a few generations of customers. Then I take some a newer brand, like a Michael Kors, which was only launched in 2004. Michael Kors misses the mark a few times. People move on. Michael Kors did just fine for a few, two decades, but it doesn't have the depth in order to keep going unless they really come up with some breakthrough ideas. So in this era where attention spans seem to have been lessened, can a new brand emerge that can withstand? First of all, I guess, how do you emerge in this society of three-second exposures and, I don't know, much quicker pace? Yeah. How do you make a mark and be able to sustain it? Well, it's more challenging than ever. And I think the problem is... Everyone is looking at the most successful companies of the last two decades. Let's just take Amazon. And they're assuming that to be successful in this new world, we have to chase Amazon. We will never be maybe as capable and we'll never have the resources, but they've kind of set a precedent for how things should be done in terms of checkouts and in terms of speed of of execution and ease of navigation and all of that. The reality, though, is as The world spends so much time on our devices and going to Amazon for our functional needs. The brands that do things in a slow way, in a quality way, in a way that couldn't be replicated by some of these newer models are even more valued, more treasured. And so the first thing I'd say, if you want to build a business that's going to last, that you have to show a lot more patience and be willing to take more time than certainly the public markets are going to allow, number one. Number two, remember that most of what makes us human hasn't changed in the internet age. I mean, going back to the irrationality of how we live, we don't need to sit down for three meals a day as we maybe did when we were farmers and, you know, you needed the sustenance in order to finish your day or whatever the lifestyle demands were. But we still insist on it. We are so hardwired to sort of go through our day with certain rituals and with certain pleasures. We don't need to have romance in our life. We can procreate without even a partner nowadays, just through a a, a laboratory. But we are so hardwired to want community, to want connection. We don't need beautiful cashmere on our bodies. We can be comfortable with blended cottons and so forth much cheaper. But it just feels good. And so my point being, I think brands that are able to defy and maybe even go, you know, when the world is zigging to double down on the zag, will get extra credit because of the scarcity of it. 
and because it still speaks to something that is so primal and so missing, so void of the modern world we live in. So who would you say has done it well again and again and again? Well, among big companies, I think it's why LVMH has ascended above and beyond anything that a Wharton textbook would say is reasonable. Or you mentioned Hermes. I mean, the valuation is not a rational one, right? But I think there's a lot of reasons that those two companies, and I could mention several others in that very small and illustrious league, have been able to capture. I think it's, number one, because while LVMH only goes back three to four decades, most of the assets that they now own and control are multiples of that. I mean, they have one brand in Renart that goes back to the 1600s. And they have a lot of small businesses in this very, very large portfolio. So you have a few big brands doing $20 billion plus in revenues. You have quite a few tiny brands that play a role and that will one day probably be bigger, but are certainly not supporting their balance sheet. And I think that the combination of that, the fact that there's so much time value and sort of insulation from the market forces that you were talking about a moment ago. Some of those brands don't even sell online. I mean, we can't imagine Mm -hmm. a company not selling online. And this is such a valuable company. Yes. So I think at scale, they do very, very well. And then the others, I see them more in the private sphere. I think something happens, sadly, to companies that go public. The short-term focus, maybe. And the pressures, the pressures and the accountabilities. And the reason, I mean, technically LVMH is public, but it is uh, so closely held by one man who gets it, who isn't really worried. I don't think his motivation, Bernard Arnault, is his own wealth. He's really creating, uh, I think it's about legacy, uh, which is why his five kids are all involved in the business as well. He's very, very oriented toward, he thinks well beyond his own lifespan in terms of what he's built. Mm Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about a more mainstream one, Target, which has sort of found at one time a sort of chic niche. Target was how people referred to it. Then the pandemic came and that was great for them, but then it was bad for them. They had way too much inventory. Where do you think about the evolution of Target as a brand? Can they get it back? So I think that their heydays really started in the 90s, where they concluded wisely that they were never going to outplay Walmart at Walmart's game, but they still could be successful, unlike Sears and JCPenney and others that didn't really pivot in the way that they did. They could be successful by not just having differentiated product, but really standing for something that was quite differentiated from what Walmart stood for. And I think that a couple things happened over the last, call it 10, 15 years, where they a little bit lost that edge. One is that they lost some of the personality. So there was a period of time where they were really taking chances. It started with Isaac Mitzrahi, and they had Liz Lang for the maternity. And financially, none of that made a difference. Really, these were rounding errors for their business. But I think the experimentation represented a willingness to play. And it was attention-worthy, which in this day and age is you have to really work hard to get people's attention. First of all, that strategy wasn't as exclusive to them. H&M has their version of it. Several other companies tried to do their—even Lord & Taylor at one point before it went 
Bust had their various collaborations. So I don't think that they had that same magic. I don't think they took it to another level. And then the other thing, and I, I don't know if this is going to continue to haunt them, but I was watching the backlash at the Pride merchandising issue, where they basically came out, as they had for many years leading up to it, with a special selection or assortment of LGBT items that they would sort of showcase around Pride Month. And on the heels of the Budweiser fiasco, they were targeted by, you know, similar aggressors and saying, you know, why are you promoting onesies that are effectively advocating for transgender rights? The whole thing got out of control. And they did, in my mind, what was probably the worst thing they could have done. They tried to appease. And in so doing, they said, well, we'll edit down the assortment. We'll take the things that might be perceived as most offensive out, but we'll stick with the rest. And why was that bad? I mean, number one, because they lost on both sides. All of a sudden, the LGBT community was saying, you're showing your cowardice. We should not be caving to these kind of attacks. And the other side wasn't going to say, well, that's fine. You took this onesie out. The rest is fine. And the reason I'm bringing it up, and, and I know this is, might sound like a departure from the concept of aesthetic strategies, but aesthetic strategies work because there's conviction. The, the four C's I talked about earlier, the creativity, the confidence, the consistency. And I think that that would have been a moment for them to take a page out of Nike's book and to say, our base is multicultural, and we're going to take somebody, however controversial, and in their case it was Colin Kaepernick, and we're going to put him front and center. That boldness, which was a big gamble, and it paid off royally. And I think that we live in this age where we cannot, I believe, escape the fact that companies, whether they want to or not, are collections of people with political ideologies, and they need to have the courage to stand up for what they believe in. And I think to try to span and to play that mass market as they did really showed that we've passed a tipping point where that might have worked 10, 15 years ago. It doesn't work now. And so when it comes to leadership, I think that, that that's, to me, really a symbol of what might be missing in the former Target. I think that, and can they get it back? I think they have to get it back with the right leadership. I would be very worried if I didn't see some changes in the next few months or years that they might be riding on something that is no longer relevant for the world we live on, or riding on a philosophy and a management style that's a bit cowardly for the world we live in. Mm -hmm. I want to pivot a little bit to your pivot, which was teaching. Do you like it? Are you energized by the students? What is it like to teach a Harvard Business School class? Well, I should caveat it by saying there's only one thing that I am qualified or, or apt to teach, and that is this course on aesthetic experiences. If you asked me to teach Marketing 101, I wouldn't want to, and nor would I be very good at it. So I don't feel I start as a teacher. I really start as somebody who felt that the world had moved so beyond what either academia or, for that matter, corporate boardrooms were talking about. And I didn't start teaching with in mind that that was going to be long-term. I sort of saw it as a bit of a laboratory, like where can I go where I can actually have a conversation, not worry about driving business results, so not having the pressures that precluded me from thinking more broadly, and testing these ideas. And these ideas being everything from, is what I'm seeing legitimate? Can you actually teach this concept of aesthetic intelligence? And how? 
And by the way, where is the next generation going? Because as I said a moment ago, business education hasn't changed that much since we were at Wharton. The business world, and even more importantly, the world outside of business has changed radically, right? And so this was really a chance for me to sort of see how I could challenge some of the system and get people, meaning the students that sit in my class, to think a little bit differently, a little more creatively, and a little bit more relevantly to the world we live in. And do I like it? Yes, I wouldn't do it otherwise. (laughs) It's a lot of work. I bet, just developing the curriculum and then the time and delivering it. All right, what is the single best piece of advice for entrepreneurs who might be out there today wondering, how can I begin building a brand? Mm -hmm. So the first thing I always say, and I've mentored uh, entrepreneurs pre-launch, early stage, all the way to pre-IPO, you have to start with a big idea, right? You know, and oftentimes they think about the functionality, of what they're going to sell, whether it's, you know, if it's a retailer, you know, where are we located and what products are we going to carry and how are we going to price it? And they, they think about it very much in terms of functionality. And that, to me, would be a second order of decisions, The first is really, why would a business like you're proposing need to exist? And what would insulate it from all the competitive pressures? What would keep it relevant? It has to be something bigger than what you're doing. And the other point I'll make is people think like, so I'm on the board of a small intimates brand, and they will think about the world, like how many women every year buy a bra. And I say, you don't have to worry about the world. You have to worry about your core customer. And you are better off being the number one choice for 10% of the population than being one of five choices for 90% of the population. And so I always believe don't get ahead of yourself in terms of thinking of the macro factors. In the first many stages of getting a business off the ground, I think the execution and depth of thought and understanding around what you're communicating and why are much more important than anything that's happening in the macro terms. You have to look at it from a completely different lens. I I think so. All right. Before we get to our lightning round, we're going to take a quick break. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. 
Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with our lightning round. So you might know this as would you rather. And the only challenge is that you can't think about the answer. You just have to answer whatever comes to your mind. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Emotional intelligence or aesthetic genius? Which would I rather? Ooh. If I were getting a business off the ground, aesthetic genius. If I were choosing a husband, emotional intelligence. (laughs) Okay. Louis Vuitton or Dior? Dior. Why? Well, first of all, having been to the factories, I know which one actually puts the money in the product and which one in the in the stores. So I think they're both expensive, but I think the value at Dior is better. And it's also, to me, the aesthetic of it agrees with me more. Mm-hmm. You know, the style of it, the, the femininity of it. Mm-hmm. Pink or black? Pink. Can you mix silver and gold? Yes, I do all the time. Fashion Week or the Met Gala? Met Gala. Why is that? Oh, it's just so fabulous, Met Gala. I mean, Fashion Week is not fabulous. It's frenetic. It's like uh, going from, imagine if you had one week of 10 circuses. By the second circus, you've had enough circus. Okay. All right. So the next question might be the same. Con or Academy Awards? Oh, that I do Academy Awards. Harvard or Columbia? Mm. Columbia, and I'll tell you why. And this is coming from somebody who likes to be in environments that are sort of culturally rich and stylish. Boston doesn't compare with New York. Okay. Cilantro or rosemary? And I ask you this because it's in your book about cilantro, the much debated... (laughs) The genetic marker. Specifically, uh, you're referring to the fact that part of our personal taste is inherited. There are markers for whether you like cilantro or not. I don't like cilantro much. I'll go with rosemary. Okay. Would you rather show up in black tie to a backyard barbecue or show up dressed for a backyard barbecue at a black tie event? Yeah, I'll wear black tie at the barbecue. I won't even show up at a barbecue dressed for a barbecue. (laughs) Okay. Fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction, definitively. What are you reading right now? Oh, my gosh. I uh, At any given time. I mean, I'm obsessed with Yuval Noah Harari. I've read everything of his. I listen to this podcast. He explains the world <laughs> so brilliantly. So, yeah, I think I will be curious to read the Oppenheimer uh, biography after I've seen the movie, uh, because I think real people and real events are so mind-blowing. Who needs fiction? Like, it's amazing what you, what's happening in the world that is true. And it's every day. I read the newspaper every day. I can't believe what's happening in the world. Okay. Well, I have to get to this. I wasn't planning, but I have to get to this. Barbie. This has obviously become a gigantic sensation. Yeah, yeah. You seem distressed over the Barbie hoopla. I want to keep an open mind. I will see it this week. I'll tell you why I'm distressed. It does feel like mass manipulation. So... Years ago, when Victoria's Secret was trying to finally course correct, and they said, well, we can't do the bombshell thing anymore, the angels, you know, we're getting backlash. It's not consistent with what Gen Z finds attractive or desirable. And they made this very foolish move, which they said, okay, we're going to give away the angels. We're going to do ambassadors. And it was so disingenuous. And the critique was, you've had decades to decide what you stood for and whether you 
and, and, and now be, because it wasn't in favor and you finally came to the conclusion that you were never going to get your position back, you've shifted to what would... And it, it's like phony popularity, right? And it didn't work. Nobody believed it. And so when I first saw this Mattel initiative, which was very much born out of a Mattel strategy to make Barbie relevant, my first reaction was they're learning what not to do from Victoria's Secret. So they're very, very clever, getting A-list actors in it, an extraordinary director, and I'm sure it'll be a lot of fun. I'm sure I'll laugh, but at the end of the day, it's all in the interest of, of, of making a doll that created a lot of damage for a lot of generations. And I, yeah, I kind of struggle with that. But I will see the movie, and I'll probably enjoy it, elements of it. <laughs> I, I will too. All right, I have one last question for you. What is the best investment you've ever made? And I have a very broad definition of investment. It could be anything. It could be a class you took. It could be absolutely anything. And what's the worst? So when I was, I was a partner at the Carlisle Group, and I never enjoyed my work, nor did I feel sort of at one with the culture there. I just had to park so much of who I am, as well as, as the time that I was forfeiting in order to maintain that position. And my kids were young. When I joined Carlisle, I want to say my daughter was maybe a year, my younger one. And I was there for a couple of years. And then just one day I had enough. And they couldn't believe that I would walk from it. And I remember thinking as I said, I said, you know, if, if there's a compromise, if you can meet me in the middle, I'll stay. I'm not stupid. I'm not going to walk away from all that vested interest. But if it was all or nothing, you haven't given me a choice. And they said, there, it, it is all or nothing. This is the nature of, of the business you signed up for. And I remember thinking when I left, it was the most expensive decision I've ever made. I left a lot of money on the table that I'll never see again in anything else I ever do. But it was the best life decision I ever made because I had many years that I'll never get back seeing my kids through pivotal years. Now, I did go back to work full time. It isn't that I became a at-home mom, but nothing I did thereafter required all of me in that same way. And I do feel I was a much more available mom as a result. So that was a really important counter-financial investment. <laughs> so it's a good answer. It's both the best and the worst. Yeah, yeah. Different realms. Yeah. In terms of money losing, for sure, that was the worst investment I ever made to move on. But it was the best one. Mm -hmm. It's a great answer. All right. Unfortunately, we're out of time. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. Thank you so much to Pauline Brown for showing us how we can all cultivate our aesthetic intelligence. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides, with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward. <laughs>